Well, one joy that I have that you probably know is coaching kids sports. I've had the opportunity to coach basketball and baseball and and even soccer. And I just love seeing the kids learn and grow and succeed and be happy that they succeeded. So when my kids succeed, of course, that sticks out in my mind. But a few other situations, opportunities stood out in my mind as I think particularly about when I've coached soccer. And you can imagine it going a little bit like this. A girl has a breakaway. She is running towards the goal. Kids are behind her, but it's clear they are not going to catch her. And she is dribbling to the goal, a big smile on her face because she knows this is her big opportunity. And the coach, that's me, I'm cheering and shouting. I'm a shouting coach. And the the parents are shouting. And she makes her, her way all the way to the goal with a big smile on her face, kicks the ball into the goal, and she is filled with joy. Now, the rest of the story is, when I was shouting, I was shouting, you're going the wrong way. Turn around. That's why she had such an open goal. And then, you can't help it, though, after she scores it. You laugh, and you clap, and you cheer on. Good job. She was going the wrong way, and she didn't get the result that she wanted. Even though she felt good about it, she didn't actually get what she was going for. And sometimes in life, this is what we do also. We don't realize we're going the wrong way. We're aiming for the wrong sorts of goals. We get something as a result that makes us feel good, and yet it's nothing that will help us ultimately or with any enduring value. We can think about that in terms of life. And and even as believers, we're sometimes turned in wrong directions again. We fall back into old habits. We pursue old worldly goals rather than the goals which God would have us pursue. But it occurs to me that this is particularly true sometimes for believers in how they view the Holy Spirit and in what they understand the Holy Spirit's work to be about. And in Understanding where the Holy Spirit is present and among us and working and moving among us, right? You've probably heard as you left a worship service or some other gathering of Christians, the Spirit really moved today. And what they presumably meant by that often has been that you felt really emotionally uh, changed. You felt really moved emotionally as a result of what took place. Well, this is important as we consider the work of the Holy Spirit because what we consider to be indications of His presence and His moving among us, those in turn will affect our goals for what we're, what we're looking for, what we're seeking, what we're aiming for. This, your understanding of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works and moves will have effects upon your own spiritual growth, how you're trying to grow as a Christian, how you face challenges in this life, what you're aiming for in your life and ministry for his glory. So we'll see this morning some of the work of the Holy Spirit. In turn, it it will help us, this knowledge will help us set the right goals and aims for our own growth and discipleship and worship. The background, of course, of John 16 is the farewell discourse. We've seen a few passages of this already in chapters 14 through 17. Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he won't be with them anymore. 
He's getting them ready. Jesus will be, as John says, he will be lifted up. He'll be lifted up on the cross, crucified for sinners. He'll descend to the grave and then he will be lifted up in resurrection. He will be lifted up in ascension and he will pour out his spirit upon his people. But before that happens, he will be going back to him who sent him, our text says here. And because of that, they, his disciples, would have much sorrow. They'll have much sorrow because of the persecution they'll face, the hostility they will face from the world. Remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about that. How we can expect as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, to face hostility from the world. Because they're, they're opposing goals, they're opposing aims. We want the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is not what the world wants. And on top of the hostility from the world, there will also be the absence of Jesus, the one they have grown to love deeply and have been with these few years. But notice Jesus says in verse 7 that it will be to their advantage. This will be, bring you great sorrow to your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's, it's better for you that I not be with you physically because... If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. The Paraclete, as we've seen, the, the Holy Spirit, this person who is one person of the Trinity, the one God. And when he comes, uh, but if I go, I will send him to you. This is why it's to the advantage of the disciples for Jesus to go away. Because then he will send his Holy Spirit. And this will, we'll come back to why that is such an advantage after a little while. But first, the focus, this will be the focus of the sermon. The work of the Holy Spirit. Notice in verses 8 and 13, Jesus says, what will happen when he comes? When he comes, he will do this. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will do this. What will the Spirit do when he comes? First, notice in verses 8 through 11, the Spirit, when he comes... He will convict the world. <clears throat> now there's some difficulty in understanding how to translate this world, uh, this word convict. Some take it to be convict in the sense of uh, the spirit bringing charges against the world. These are the charges that he is bringing against the world in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment. The word can also mean expose to to pull back the curtain upon these things. It can also mean to, to prove these things or to convict in another sense, not bringing charges, but, but pricking the heart of those who are in the world. There's a difficulty with all these proposals for the meaning of the world. But I, I think I, I would favor siding with the commentator Don Carson who says in almost every instance of this word in the New Testament, it has to do with showing someone his sin, usually as a summons to repentance. So it's not a guarantee they're going to repent, but it is, it is a, a pointing out, a showing of one's sin, one's guilt, in order that then they would respond in repentance. When he comes, he will convict the world. He will he will shame the world and convince it of its own sin, even if it doesn't turn back to him in repentance. And 
The Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world in regards to these three subjects. It's very clear how Jesus lays it out for us. Although the, the interpretation is a bit difficult, at least we can understand kind of the outline. He will convict the world in regards to its sin, its righteousness, and its judgment. Let's consider these each in turn. Notice in verse 9, he says, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus. Man's rebellion against God is seen most clearly in the rejection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we do agree that man already has a knowledge of their sin, right? From Romans 1.18 and following. It says, all people are without excuse because they have seen from creation that God exists. They know inwardly, in their hearts, they know God exists. And yet, each one of us has turned in rebellion against that God. We know that he is good, that he created us for his own glory. And yet, we have lived for ourselves, setting ourselves upon his throne. But through the preaching of Christ, the Spirit brings a person to a decision point concerning Christ. And if they reject him, it is, it makes it all the more clear that they have rebelled against God. I mean, consider Almighty God, the creator of the universe, coming in human flesh and his own people reject him. Sin of the most heinous sort. And yet, we can also understand that not only does the Holy Spirit do this with unbelievers as he does it through the preaching of the disciples, he also continues to do this for his people. He continues to convict us of sin and guilt. Consider when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. Were you not pricked to your conscience about how you had offended against your holy God? About how you had, you had hated your brother, perhaps. You had sinned in judgment and prejudice against other people. You had lived for your own pleasure, your own desires, your own love of self instead of God's glory. And even now, are you not pricked to your conscience when you sin against your God? This past week, how have you sinned against your God? And often you'll have to think in terms of your relationships, your wife, your husband, your brother, your sister, your children, your parents. Children, how have you sinned against your parents this week? Was there a sharp word spoken to a loved one? Was there a thought that turned a thought of hatred towards someone? And if you felt a prick of guilt in that, you can be assured that it was the Holy Spirit doing his work in your heart, that you might turn in repentance and confession back to him. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He will, he has been convicting the world of sin and also of righteousness, verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Notice that the Holy Spirit's conviction of the world concerning righteousness is related also to Jesus. It's related to Jesus' going away and no longer being able to see him physically. Jesus, the light of the world, exposes the sin of the world and also exposes the complete inadequacy of human righteousness. Jesus is God's righteousness in human form. And since he departs, he removes that vision of his righteousness. 
But with his coming, with his, his works of righteousness throughout his life, always pleasing the Father, always obeying the Father, he showed humanity. He showed the Jews of the time, the Pharisees, and he shows all humanity the complete inadequacy of human righteousness. Throughout the book of John, what have we seen in terms of confrontations between Jesus and people? It's been particularly the Pharisees in regards to their own righteousness. Think about the sorts of things that they are said to have been looking to. The law. They find their righteousness in the law. Moses. They look to Moses because they think in him they have salvation. The temple. This was their hope. This is where God made his presence known among us. The Sabbath day. Keeping the Sabbath. All of these things are a way to prop up their own righteousness before God. And when Jesus comes in his perfect righteousness, he exposes that any attempt at human righteousness is a complete sham. It is worthless. And the Holy Spirit, in his mercy, convicts us in the world of that. Jesus is the true substance of what righteousness is. And in his absence, as the disciples preached the gospel of Jesus Christ... He would continue to do this. Again, brothers and sisters, think of how you came to see that your own righteousness was complete rubbish. Paul speaks about this in his conversion, how he thought he had something. He was the best of the best in terms of the Jews and the Pharisees. Perhaps that is the same way you thought about yourself. Perhaps also those of you who are raised in the church. You thought you had, you thought you had it all done. You checked the boxes on your little scorecard that you brought your Bible and you came to church and you had re been reading your Bible and you'd been praying. But then when the righteousness of Jesus Christ shows up, he puts that all to shame. And I wonder, have you lately been returning to these sorts of ideas about your own righteousness? In what ways are you tempted to establish your own righteousness before God and other people? We all do it. The world does it. They may do it in different ways, maybe not in terms of morality, but food, different food choices. We, we can establish a sort of righteousness with that, with exercise, with the way we spend our money, any number of things. And perhaps even lately you have been turning to your own ideas of righteousness. I wouldn't say that, of course I wouldn't say these are bad things. Reading your Bible and praying and coming to church. I want to encourage all of those things. But in what ways, helping other people, serving others, in what ways have you begun to see these as a way you can establish your own righteousness before God to seek his favor? A complete sham. And Jesus exposes that to us. But also notice in verse 11, he will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And I think this has to do with a couple of things. First, discernment concerning their own judgment concerning who Jesus is. As Jesus had said previously, judge with right judgment, not simply according to appearances. But also, he's speaking of the judgment which is deserved by the devil and all those who reject Christ. By his death and resurrection, Jesus defeats death and the devil. And through the preaching of the disciples, the Spirit would convict the world of their impending judgment along with 
the devil. When he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, how will he do this? How will the Spirit convict the world? How will the Spirit convict us? How will he convict others around us in this community of Rollsville, in your neighborhoods, in your communities, as you are able to speak the gospel, what, what is going on? What means does the Spirit use to accomplish this? And I've alluded to it a few times. It is through your words, brothers and sisters. I get this from how Jesus is explaining to the disciples that this is to their advantage. It's to your advantage, disciples, that I go away because the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world in these ways through you. Also taking it in conjunction with the Spirit coming to you to do these things. And also jumping back to a previous passage where it is said that they will bear witness of Him. That the Spirit will bear witness and so will they. These things are ascribed to the Spirit and they take place through the preaching of the gospel from the disciples. And through your words and my words. This is, this is amazing that the Spirit does this. As you go and speak to a friend about Jesus, in and of yourself, in and of your words, nothing happens. You might be able to change someone's mind intellectually, but that's not what we're going for, right? We're going for changed hearts. And you cannot, with your words, reach down into them and change their heart. But what the Scripture here is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that the Holy Spirit accompanies those words to prick the conscience of those who hear so that they feel their own guilt of sin, their own lack of righteousness, and the impending judgment which is to come. Rejoice in this, brothers and sisters. This is a great power, a superpower that you have. As you speak words about Christ, He is working for His glory. It gives us confidence as we speak the word. It gives us joy as we speak the word that God would allow us to be participants with his work in this. And he is doing it among us as well, brothers and sisters, as we speak to one another. He will do this. First, he does it through the future ministry of the disciples as they preach Christ, and then he does it in and among us by his Spirit. He will convict the world when he comes and he will second guide his people into all the truth. Notice that in verse 12 and 13. He, he does say, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. It would be sweet to reflect upon the sensitivity of Christ concerning knowledge of what they can and can't handle, not giving them all, everything that, that he had, all the truth that he had right at the beginning, but being patient with them, caring for them. It informs how we speak to one another in sensitivity. But he says, when he comes, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will Speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Well, how will the Spirit guide his disciples into all truth? How, we could speak in terms of application, how will he guide his people into all truth? We might think of something like a man with his dog on a leash, guiding him along. The dog tries to go that way, gives little taps this way, 
guides him that way, tugs him along wherever he wants to go. Uh, you might be thinking, Christians sometimes think in terms of you're walking down the road. Maybe you're driving out of the service today and you're, you're wanting to be guided by the Spirit and you think, do I turn left or right? And you look for some inward impulse that you think might be the Spirit to guide you where you ought to go. We often may think of this in terms of decision making. And yet, often in the Scripture, the Spirit's guiding is more moral in nature. One example of this is in Psalm 143, verse 10. When the psalmist cries, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. We also see in the scriptures the spirit leading his people into, into peaceful places. We think of Psalm 23, the good shepherd. We think of Isaiah 63, the Spirit leading God's people out of Egypt, which it appears is speaking of, of Christ in some sense, of the Lord who rescued his people out of Egypt. Well, maybe help for us will come in considering what he means by the truth. Maybe we'll better understand what it means that he guides us as we consider what truth he is talking about he will guide us into all the truth what truth is he speaking about what is the truth that the spirit guides us in and to this i would point to other passages pretty close passages within the context of john and say the truth is jesus christ jesus says i am the way and i am the truth and i am the life John 15, 26 and 27. This is the Spirit's work. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, the truth. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Spirit will guide his people into all the truth of who Jesus Christ is and of what he speaks. Christ and his word. This is how the Spirit is working, brothers and sisters, by highlighting the person and the work and the words of Jesus Christ. We might consider an example in Acts chapter 8. Do you remember that situation? Turn there in your Bibles, Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and following. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place, and he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over to join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me and he invited philip to come up and sit with him now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent so he opens not his mouth in humiliation justice was denied him who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth and the eunuch said to philip about whom i ask does the prophet say this about himself or someone else then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
Philip, being guided by the Holy Spirit into all truth, guides the Ethiopian eunuch into all the truth. That is, the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ for sinners for the glory of God. Driving, the Holy Spirit is working, driving his people into a deeper and deeper understanding of the truth, which is Jesus Christ. And he is driving us deeper into what it means to live as his disciples. So as one commentator, Raymond Brown says, it involves a way of life in conformity with Jesus' teaching. He goes on to say, the best Christian preparation for what is coming to pass, he speaks about, he will tell you what is coming, is not an exact foreknowledge of the future, but of a deep understanding of what Jesus means for our own time. Jesus says, he will glorify me. He will lift him up. He will exalt. This is the Holy Spirit's work. Exalting, making much of Jesus Christ by taking what is his and giving it to the disciples. In the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, glory is often related to the second coming to Jesus coming on the clouds, when we will see his glory, when all people will see the glory of Jesus Christ. And we wouldn't want to say it's not that, but in the Gospel of John, glory is most often related to the brutal suffering and death, being lifted up on a cross, being crucified for sinners. This, brothers and sisters, is the glory of Christ for sinners. Rejoice in it. This is the glory of Christ who came to rescue you, to atone for your sin when you could do nothing about it. He came to establish righteousness and to give you his righteousness when you had no way of earning it before God. He came, brothers and sisters, to rescue you from the impending judgment which you deserve, which I deserve, which he didn't deserve. He bore the wrath of God for your sins. This is the glory of Christ. Rejoice in it, brothers and sisters. Enjoy it. On the first level of application, this would relate directly to his disciples who would bear witness of Jesus Christ. The Spirit empowered them to know Christ in a way they didn't know him, even though they were there with him presently and physically. The Spirit came and taught them all that they needed to know about the truth, which is Jesus Christ. But the application for us is similar in that first, we find here a fulfillment of the prophecies concerning the Spirit of God indwelling us and causing us to walk in His ways for His glory. The Spirit is leading us into a deeper understanding and knowledge of who Christ is through the Scriptures and through the preaching of the Scriptures to one another. Not just me standing here preaching, but all of us as we speak the Word to one another. And third, the Spirit is empowering us for faithful and effective ministry to the world. We are powerless without the Spirit in our words and our deeds unless He is working among us. What then is the evidence that the Spirit is among us? That He's moving? How do you know the Spirit has really moved? Is it a thrilling emotional experience? The hairs on your neck standing up, getting goosebumps all over? from an amazing speech or song 
If, if that's all that it is, you could go to an orchestral concert. Some people could. Or to a music concert. Or to a movie that, that really moves you deeply. If you want to feel that. If that's what we're aiming for. If that's the goal we're going for. Is it an outward physical posture? Of falling to your knees? Or raising your hands? If that's the case, go to a football game. If that's truly indicative of the Spirit's presence. Now, I'm not saying those are bad things. I clapped. I raised my hands. I bow my knee. I love feeling emotional experiences. All those things can take place in a true sense in the worship of God. And yet they are unreliable as indicators of the Spirit's movement. They, they don't do the, what we need it to do. They don't genuinely tell us if the Spirit was here or not. Those things can have an appearance of spirituality, but they are ineffective to give you what you actually need. They might give you what you desire if you're aiming for those things, but they cannot give you an enduring love for Christ and desire to live for his glory. They can't make you more like Jesus, as wonderful as those experiences are. The evidence that the Spirit has moved is this. Has the Lord Jesus Christ in his suffering? in his brutal crucifixion, in the blood pouring out of his hands and feet, in his body broken? Is Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection, in his righteousness, has Jesus Christ been glorified and lifted up? There the Spirit is moving. There the Spirit is working. Has the world been convicted of sins? Have you been convicted of sins? Have you been convicted that your righteousness is not, never will be enough to set you at peace before God? There the Spirit of God is moving. Have we been led to Him who is the way and the truth and the life? Then we know that the Holy Spirit is present and active. And knowing this will help you pursue the right goals for your own spiritual benefit when you gather together and the word of god christ is proclaimed enjoy this brothers and sisters soak it up the glories of jesus christ the spirit is there when you are alone in the quiet reading the word of god and the glories of christ look beautiful to you enjoy that the spirit is at work when you are sitting over coffee or with little kids playing in the background and you are speaking to your brother and sister of Christ who is crucified for your sins. There the Spirit is at work. Enjoy the glory of Jesus. Jesus says, it is better for you that I go. And I'll close with one more quote from Raymond Brown concerning that. One may still ask, why John says that is this exchange of place between Jesus and the paraclete is good for the disciples. Why would they not be just as well off if Jesus remained? The answer is that only through the internal presence of the Holy Spirit do the disciples come to understand Jesus fully. Or, if we call upon other passages where John describes the paraclete, only the communication of the Spirit begets people as God's children. And if you love the glory of Christ, the Holy Spirit has given you new birth. Let's pray together.